Hello and welcome to Northeast Christian Church online service. We are so happy to have you with us. Please be sure to follow NECC on all social media platforms. And to listen to all our past messages, follow us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and YouTube. Thank you and enjoy the rest of the service. What I want to talk to you today is about one of the biggest letdown wedding preparations in history. The Mary and Joseph wedding. And I want to talk to you today, whether you're here or you're online, about what I call the greatest story never told about Joseph. And there's a joke. Can I tell a joke? I'll, I'll give it a try, right? So uh, we all know that Jesus is all-knowing, but this is, this is just a joke. But one day Jesus is relaxing in heaven, and he happened to notice a familiar old-looking man. And so wondering if that old man was his father, Joseph, he asked him, he said, did, did you by any chance ever have a son? And he said, well, yes, the old man said. But he wasn't my biological son. He was born by a miracle and the intervention of a magical being from heaven. Very interesting, Jesus said. And so he goes, uh... Uh, did the boy ever have to fight temptation? And he said, oh, yes, many times, answered the old man. But he eventually won. Unfortunately, he heroically died at one point, but he came back to life shortly afterwards. Jesus couldn't believe it. Could this actually be his father? One last question, sir. He goes, were you a carpenter? And he says to him, why, yes, replied the old man. Yes, I was. Jesus rubs his eyes, and he says, Dad! And the father looks at him and rubs his eyes and he says, Pinocchio! <laughs> That's the only Joseph joke I know, but I thought it was pretty funny. Now, if, if you don't know the story of Pinocchio, you're kind of like, what? Geppetto, he makes him. Yay. I'm going to read for you the story. You can find it, if you would, on your Bible. If you'd open up your Bible, if you'd open up your phone, your iPad, whichever... I want to bring your attention to Matthew chapter 2, starting at verse... I'm sorry, Matthew chapter 1, starting at verse 18. Matthew chapter 1, verse 18. We're going to read from 18 all the way through to verse 25. We had a handout for you today, but if I could assure you, it'd probably be good for you to look at from time to time, but it might not be one of those things that you follow along. I really make it my purpose to give you things and quotes and citations and stuff that you, you couldn't find on your own to kind of back what I'm talking about. And uh, that's there for you, but let's talk today here, reading God's Word. Here we go. Now, at the birth of Jesus... Now, the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child by the Holy Spirit. And her husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. Imagine a man who doesn't go after somebody in bitterness, but actually just tries to put things away in quietness. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is of the Holy Spirit. 
She will bear a son, and, she, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord spoke, had spoken by the prophet, the prophet Isaiah, chapter 7, verse 14, reads like this, Behold, the virgins shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. God's with us today. And when Joseph woke from his sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded. He took his wife, but knew her not until she gave birth to a son, and he called his name Jesus. Father, I ask that you would, through your word and through your spirit, not only inform us, not only speak to us, but transform us and speak through us of the fact that you are with us. I pray that your word would bring the power that it holds through your spirit. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. This is, this is the perfect wedding. I don't know if you, you know this, but if you read the two genealogies, both of them are about Joseph. One of them shows his kingly connection all the way from David and Solomon to Josiah, all of the greatest kings of Israel. He flows through that bloodline. And then they go through this prophetic kind of ministry patriarch line. People like Boaz and Abraham and Noah and all of these people. Joseph, if ever there was somebody that would have been a threat to the throne and to Rome, it was Joseph. Joseph had the perfect pedigree for them to put a crown on his head and say, king of the Jews, the very thing that Herod wore over his head because he, was, he had all of, the, all of the check boxes of all of the great things that made somebody the Messiah, the king, descendant of David, was, was uh, descended from Abraham. So he has, he has a faith heritage within him, and he has a royal heritage within him. If anybody they should have been concerned about, it would have been Joseph. If Joseph decided to go public and say, I'm here, let's get an army, let's get it together, and let's throw Rome and take over. But that wasn't the kind of man Joseph was. Joseph wasn't looking for power, but he was looking for a wife, and he thought he found her in Mary. In fact, the unique thing about Mary that most people don't know is that while Joseph has the most kingly and the most prophetic and patriarchal line, Mary has and comes from the highest priestly line of the priesthood of Aaron. In fact, right in Luke chapter 3, verses 23 through 20, uh, I'm sorry, right in Luke chapter 1, verse 15, she goes to visit her cousin Elizabeth, and we know the story. She's carrying John the Baptist. Mary's carrying Jesus. John the Baptist leaps inside of her, but they, we get a detail into who Elizabeth and Mary are and who they're connected to in that it says that she was from the daughters of Aaron. Mary and Elizabeth shared a heritage that they could track all the way back to the very first high priest. This is about as perfect as, a, this would be like, I don't know, how many of you can remember, we're going to date ourselves here, can we do it? You afraid? Be bold, be strong. Happy 25th birthday, okay? You just deal with it, right? You're, you're 50, but stop counting at 25. How many of you remember watching Princess Diana and Prince Charles get married, right? 
How many of you remember Prince Andrew and Kate Middleton getting married? That's kind of more the thing. This, this is like one of those, when it comes to spiritual weddings, this is like Prince Andrew meets Kate Middleton. Perfect match. Prince Charles meets Princess Diana. The, everything was just perfect and right, and although their lives weren't perfect and right in the normal, from a spiritual point of view, it couldn't get any better. And Matthew, being a good Jewish man, when he writes his gospel, he's writing to his fellow Jewish men. In fact, when you read the gospel of Mark, Mark is writing to Romans. You can't find Old Testament Bible verses in there. Why? Because the Old Testament was unfamiliar and it meant nothing to the Roman people abroad. But when it comes to Matthew, Matthew litters his entire gospel with Old Testament quotes because every single Jewish person that was in need of Jesus, as they were reading the story, they'd be like, and he was born... Uh, of David, he was of the line of David, the line of, and they'd be like, aha, aha, this is the man, this is the guy. They would know the prophecies, they would know what was going to, what they needed to fulfill. Now, today we have this thing called engagements, and it was a profitable business for a friend of mine because he used to go in Rhode Island off of one of the piers and he would scuba dive because of this thing called American engagements, because every once in a while, there'd be a girl who would be so mad at her man, she'd say, I hate you, that's it. She'd take a ring, and she'd throw it in the water, and my friend would be like, thank you. He'd scuba dive down, he, uh, he'd get that ring back. My wife's in nursery, so don't tell her I did that. <laughs> Just for the record, I got it here. Now, engagements, I believe this as a pastor. Engagements are made to be broken. You can push against them real hard because when, when you marry, it's for life. You got to stick it out. Now, there are exceptions to this. And in fact, we'll see in here that God, actually, Joseph, is working through the system of divorce here. Unfortunately, it's never, there's never a happy thing. It's not like people are happy to find themselves in that place. But man, engagements... How many times have you wanted to throw your engagement ring? Don't raise your hand. And in Judaism, it was a two-part step. They didn't have engagement in marriage. They had a thing called betrothal. It was a two-part process. When you betrothed yourself to someone, you literally signed a contract that meant that your wife owned your stuff with you. You literally gave a dowry to the father and said, not only does she own my stuff with me, but you own this stuff right now. So there were, like imagine if you didn't just have to put a deposit for a ring, but you had to put that person on the house. And you had to put them on the checking account. Some of you are kind of like, yeah, I want to be biblical about this. <laughs> Later on, a year would go by, and it was typical for a year. They would live in two separate places. The bridegroom is left alone to himself, and the bride is left alone to herself, and there's all kinds of stuff in here you can read at a later time. And they were usually given 12 months. It says this in, one, in Jewish literature. It says that they gave the, the wife, the virgin, 12 months to provide for herself, and that the husband uh, 
also was given a time of preparation of 12 months for himself. So they, they get engaged not for three months, six months, or Vegas style. You know, they get engaged on this side, hop on a plane and married there. They were totally in this for a year, and it was expected that they would be pure. It was expected that they would be separate from each other. It was expected that they would be honorable. And backing out of this was not an easy thing. And in comes Joseph. And it says this, that before they came together, she was found to be with child. And the child's clearly not Joseph. In fact, if you look at verse 19, it says, before they came together. And then at verse 25, it says this, but he knew her not until she had given birth to a son, and he called his name Jesus. So right here, Matthew is making it very, very clear that the kid's not Joseph's, and that he, did, he was not intimate with his wife from the moment that he was about to consider divorcing her to the moment that Jesus was born. He did, he did, there is no attachment of Joseph to Jesus. And the angel says, that which is conceived in her is by the Holy Spirit. Now, Next week, I might, I'm gonna talk a little bit more about the virgin birth, but when it, comes to, when it comes to that top, that's kind of a weird word to say in church, right? Like, I know it's supposed to mean the pure thing, but virgin, 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 right? It's, it's, it's literally a core doctrine about Jesus, that Jesus was born fully man because Mary is his mother, but he is also born fully God, conceived by the Holy Spirit. Jo he is not Joseph's child. He is as much a child of heaven as he is a child of earth. He understands what you and I have yet to realize, the glory and the power of heaven, the power of the Holy, and the presence of the Holy Spirit, and he understands fully what it is like to be tempted to a point where you're saying, I don't know if I can bear this. He knows what it's like to be betrayed, and he knows what it's like to behold God. And everybody gets caught in the story about the virgin birth and the baby in the manger and the star and, and Mary and the cute baby and, and, and the, the bunnies and the, the, the goats and everything that we have that goes by here. I just throw bunnies in there because I like them. But nobody thinks about Joseph. Imagine. First of all, oh my gosh, what we could do as a church if men decided to just live half as godly as Joseph did. When I picture Joseph, that the Bible says that he's a righteous man, I picture a man who is daily seeking the face of God and on his knees, who's daily talking to God and saying, oh God, be with my son, be with my daughter. A man who's saying, oh God, please help me with my anger issue that I don't take out my frustrations of work on my wife at home. A man who says to himself, I don't care how hard it gets, I don't care how long it takes, I don't care how low we go, I am not leaving these people alone. They're my family, and we are in it to the end. What a church could do if there were just a handful of, if, if, if all of us as men 
And speaking to you as men, if we saw our life as an occasion to rise to, to say, God, make us like Joseph, a man who can rise up, not a stepfather, but a father who steps up to be a man, to be a father to the fatherless, to be a father to people who, who don't know what that's like, to, to be a godly man that we are in touch with God so that when somebody comes to us and their life's falling apart, instead of us pouring gossip and bile and bitterness in their ear, we can pour hope and scripture and the Holy Spirit into their life. He's a righteous man. Now Matthew provides an important detail about Joseph being a righteous man. And here's where I'm gonna talk about language, but I love the fact that I'm in a church where there are people that speak not just, there are some of us that speak one language, there are some of you here that speak two languages, three languages, the most I've, I've come in contact with in our community is someone who spoke five languages. It's one thing to understand like Spanish and English. It's another thing to be able to go from Spanish to English to French to Swahili. Um, I am fully convinced that Africans, not African-Americans, but African-Africans, you come over from there, you're some of the smartest people on the planet. I don't know how it is that you're able to, I have somebody clapping like, yes. How is, it that, how is it that you can just know so many languages so easy and so quick? And uh, I remember there was a, 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 a group of people who, a couple that were going through, they were in the process of, of getting married and I needed to find somebody and, and I had spoken with somebody and I threw a few French lines at them a couple of times, like, you know, and they spoke French a little bit. And then all of a sudden I found out that they spoke Swahili and they spoke a Kenyan language and they, I said, I, I need somebody to talk to this person. They're like, Pastor, I speak that dialect. And I'm like, what? So I'm not worried about language here. And you shouldn't be worried about language here if you speak one language or five. The Bible was written in the Old Testament in Hebrew and the New Testament in Greek. Okay, here comes, here comes my pop quiz for you. What language was the Old Testament written in? Hebrew. All right, I'll, get, I'll give you a do-over on that. Extra credit. What language was the Old Testament written in? Hebrew. What language is the New Testament written in? Greek. Is the Old Testament written in Greek? So keep that in the forefront of your mind because when you call somebody a righteous man, Matthew provides an important detail about Joseph, a righteous man, because Matthew's not just calling him a good guy, but he's calling him a pious, good, holy, and learned sage. He's rabbi material. The Greek word used for Matthew reflects a word that's called tzaddik. The phrase is used in connection of many of the great rabbis. When you would talk about somebody, one of them, Shimon the righteous, and what they were calling him was not just like Shimon the good guy, they're saying Shimon the godly, the wise, the well-studied. And when you begin to look at who Joseph is through this lens, you begin to get a different picture of just some guy who's just in the story and he's just the guy paying the bills and taking care of things. But no, when he was being brought together with Mary, he brought royalty, he brought godliness, he brought 
he was, he was incredibly well-learned in God's word. And her husband, Joseph, being a righteous man, unwilling to put her to shame, decides that he'll divorce her quietly. What's interesting is, is that this type of person who Joseph was, the Talmud talks about them. It says, it says this, the, the idea that he wants to divorce Mary because he's looking at her and he's saying, I can't believe you cheated on me. Let, let me just step back for a second here. Forgive my, my fragmented communication or my lack of eloquence. I, I want you to catch this. Imagine that you've devoted yourself completely and wholly your entire life for that person. You kept yourself pure. You kept yourself in a relationship with Jesus Christ. You kept yourself from engaging in sexuality before marriage. I cannot tell you, I, can't, I, I couldn't even count as a pastor and as a mentor through the years how many Christian couples are cannot come to the table the way that Jesus did and jo Mary and Joseph came to the table. They were pure. That the church would see these people as an example. They were pure people. And Joseph steps up. He's waited his whole life. He's given his, Mary's family a huge sum of finances. He's put Mary on the deed to the house. He's, he's ready to follow through with this and as he goes and he meets with Mary, he finds out she's pregnant. Some of you here who have ever been cheated on, some of you who have ever uh, walked in and found your boyfriend kissing another girl or vice versa, or whatever, you kind of get the idea of what's going on here, but not on the level of Joseph. He's like, God, I've, I've lived my life right. And this is the moment you just, you, just need to, you just need to spend a day in divorce court to watch how ugly it is. When I read that Joseph was willing to put the matter away quietly, that proves he's a godly man. He says, look, it is what it is. I'm going to just, I don't want to be in the way of this. Maybe you can marry that guy. I, I don't know, but, and you got to admit, like, he's just a guy. He doesn't know. The, the, the angel didn't show up to him ahead of time and tell him the whole plan of God. He wasn't, like, dialed into the scriptures that he was going to find out his wife was going to be pregnant and with, with a child. I mean, this must have been such a crash and a disappointment. The deposits were paid on the venue. The bottle dancers were already set to go. The family was there. The chairs were picked. The party was set. And in a moment... Bam! That entire thing gets smashed right in front of his face. How many a man, if that happened to you, would be like, I'm done. <laughs> I'm done. And what's interesting is, is it talks about a, a, a godly Jewish man in this part of the world. It says, what people, what do the people carefully avoid in Israel? And he replied, this is a rabbi talking to his disciple, he replied, putting others to shame. Can we just pause here for a second, men, and learn a lesson from Joseph? I think one of the grossest 
weapons within a marriage and within child rearing is shame. Now, conviction is awesome. Guilt is what happens when we're guilty. And those things drive us to God. But to hold over somebody's head and to rub it in their face, I often wonder if Jesus, when the woman who was caught in adultery was brought before them and they were ready to stone her, I wonder how many of those people grabbing rocks had committed adultery themselves. I wonder how many people in that crowd had crossed lines that they shouldn't have, and yet they're ready to pummel this woman to pieces. I wonder what was going through the mind of Jesus at this moment. I know what my dad would do. And he writes in the dirt. Some say he was wrote the commandments. It doesn't say what he wrote, but he wrote in the dirt, and one by one, they dropped the rocks and they walked away. And he said, woman, where are your accusers? He says, neither do I condemn you. And then he says, go and sin no more. Where did he learn that lesson? From his father, from Joseph. See, he could have shamed her. Men, these are for you to protect your family and to protect the weak and the innocent. And if I could add a couple of those things to, to that, you know. Those are to protect the weak, the, the innocent, your family. It, this is sometimes the most powerful blow you could ever give to your spouse or your child the finger of shame. When you keep all of the offenses that they do and keep them in your pocket so that when you pull that hand out and the finger goes up, instead of you quietly putting away a matter, you decide to fight it out in front of everybody and shame that person. Joseph really represents, what, what, he's such a godly guy, nobody ever gives him attention and he's really the greatest story never told. I had a friend of mine say this, he says, when I get to heaven, when I finally get there, after I see Jesus, after I see the people that I love, the first person that I wanna go and meet and talk to is Joseph, to be able to say to him, what was it about you that God chose you to protect his son in this world? And that's what he did. See, he stepped to the table with all of the right things, but that wasn't what God chose. God chose the Holy Spirit and Mary to bring Jesus into this world so he would be fully God and fully man, but he chose Joseph very intentionally because it says this, it says that Joseph was a righteous man. It doesn't say that because God chose him to be the stepfather of Jesus, that made him righteous. No, he already was a righteous man. And I think if we as men began to work on our righteousness, doing things the way that God would want them done, acting the way that God would want us, and don't get me wrong here, this takes a, lot of, this takes a lifetime of practice, a lifetime of intentionality. I still fly off the handle, I've got a temper, I say and do things that I shouldn't do to this day. This pastor is really no better than you out there in that. And, and I'm trying to constantly work out my life just as much as you're trying to work out your life. But the, the question is, is, is it, 
Is it on your priority list? Like when you wake up, like the same way that you're saying, I need to get a house, I need to pay the mortgage, I need to do that, I need to keep my mouth shut when I need to, I need to make sure that I don't shame people, I need to make sure that I, I, I try to help people instead of hurt them, I need to make sure that I'm talking to God on a regular basis, I need to be able to get my words out of my head and get God's word into my heart. Imagine what God could do with you and your family if you as a man or if you as a woman chose to do that. I think people would look at Christianity and say, man, I want that, I need that. But the Bible says this, that taking Mary as his wife also meant taking Jesus as his son. In Judaism, it was the father that taught the children. Here's, here's the crazy part of the story. We think that Jesus popped out of the womb. The star shined. Oh, the angels sang, hallelujah. <laughs> That's why I'm not on the choir. <clears throat> All this kind of stuff. And he's instantly, he's God, so he knows everything, right? Well, no. The Bible says that he grew in wisdom and stature before God and man, which means that he subjected himself to being like you and me. He grew up, he learned. I don't know, and I can't figure out all the limitations, but Jesus had some boundaries on him as even though he was, he was fully God, he had some boundaries on him that were fully man so that he could look in our face and say, I, I don't know everything, I'm not, I'm not, uh, I, I'm, you know, he didn't come out and speak every language in the world and do trigonometry and geometry and all those kind of things. He had to go to school. He had to be raised. Who would have done that? It was Joseph. See, you and I, when we think of school, we think of sending our kids off to a public school system. Some of us think of homeschool, where mom's going to stay home and teach the kids, and dad's going to bring home the bacon. In Judaism, it was the father who raised the children, and especially the son. Listen to this. This is a Jewish person from the time of Jesus spoken. He said, above all else, we pride ourselves in the education of our children and regard the most essential task in life of the observance of our law and of the pious practices, that's the word used for Jesus, uh, Joseph, the righteous man, the pious practices based upon which we have inherited. And all fathers not only taught their children about God's word, but they were also supposed to teach their child a trade. In Judaism, they were, they, they, the great, some of the greatest rabbis were never over pastors of the synagogue. They were dual tradesmen. They had a trade and Torah. In fact, the rabbis would do the same. They would teach their disciples Torah and trade. This is why when anyone comes on staff, the first thing that we do is have them clean a toilet. Because if you can't clean a toilet or plunge a toilet when it's broken, you know, you can't pray over that thing. And believe me, I've seen some people, I've seen some toilets, I'm like, I'm going to pray for this one and hope that it works because I don't want to touch this thing. But if you think that Pastor Dylan and I just kind of walk through the building all day and we're like, 
When I think about the Lord. You know, we, we have these air jam guitar sessions in here. Hey, Dylan, let's, let's, let's have some worship. Turn on the music. And we, oh my goodness, you don't believe it. We're on the phone with lawyers. We're on the phone with people. We're calling up nursing homes. We're running off to the store. Home Depot, I found out Jesus is at Home Depot. I go, and, and because I, the, the, I'm here, and I'm like, there's so many different parts of what we do. Uh, I remember I taught Dylan how to install his first toilet. Remember that? Remember that? Wasn't that like monumental? One day you'll thank me for that, Monica. One day she'll thank me for that. But I'm like, this is how it works. You got to put the wax ring in there. Otherwise, like, ooh, everything goes everywhere. And we did. And, and here's the thing is, is that there's a reason why in today, even this day that we live in, there are law firms Goldstein and Goldstein. There are doctor's offices that are Rubenstein and Rubenstein, father and son, father and son, father and son, because the father not only taught his son the word of God, he taught him Torah. And that's even uh, recorded in Jewish literature, to teach him Torah, to teach him trade, and then to get him married and get him out of the house. It's literally, I just, that's really what they did. I just added the get him out of the house thing. I hope my kids never leave me. I love them. Now, here's the thing about Joseph. Joseph, we learn from Matthew 155, Luke 422. It's all in that handout that they dropped in on online church. Maybe you could redrop that for people. They know it's there. It's on the handout. If you didn't grab coming in, you could grab coming out, all this different stuff. But when it uses the Greek word technon for a carpenter, it's not just talking about somebody who cuts wood and builds with wood, no. Uh, in fact, in Jerusalem, to this day, you are not allowed to build houses made of wood. You have to build them out of stone. So it's, it's literally, Joseph's father was a stonemason and a wood carpenter all in one. That's pretty impressive trade. And in fact, I'll tell you what, the trades are paying more than the PhDs in our world today. And they would teach their son that trade. They would teach them God's word. How, what did it look like for Joseph when Jesus was growing up in Nazareth? Going through the commandments. In fact, there's a spot right where we go, we, where we go when we go to Israel. I've reached that age where every time I bend over, I grunt. <clears throat> it's one of my favorite spots. It's it's the place where they took Jesus out from the synagogue and were so offended with him they were going to push him off of the cliff. And it's, it's a high drop. I mean, it's a death drop. It's a death drop. But the Bible says Jesus worked his way through the crowd. But I don't go to that place just because of that moment. I usually sit down there and I'm like, this is where Jesus grew up. This, right where I'm sitting there was probably a moment where Jesus and Joseph were sitting next to each other. And I know the, the whole landscape that's there. See that hill over there, Jesus? Yep. That is where Gideon went with 300 men and the enemy turned on himself and God brought deliverance. Do you see that mountain over there, Jesus? That's Mount Carmel. That's where Elijah stood against 400 Baal prophets and God called down lightning on his offering from heaven, showing that the Lord is God. Do you see that place over there, Jesus? That's Mount Tabor. That's where Deborah and Barak 
came against the Canaanites and they fought right here. This is where it all happened. And even though he was fully God, he allowed himself to be fully man. So he went through that process, not coming out speaking all the languages, but think about that for a second. I'm constantly talking to my sons, constantly, about how to conduct themselves, about trying to make God as practical as possible because he's a practical God and he's also a supernatural God. I'm I'm constantly, in fact, our hangout isn't a cliff. Our hangout is usually kind of we're chilling on my bed together. We're downstairs in the living room kind of watching something. We started a new series and we're we're hanging out together and and talking. I love my kids, man. I, I, uh, I, I, I wish I could build two houses right off of mine and just say, move in here with your kids and move in there. That's how they did it in Bible times. They moved in with the family. See, family wasn't this thing you were trying to get away from. Family was this thing that you were trying to keep around you so that you were strong. Uh, It's a different day that we live in. Here it goes, the grunt. (laughs) Is that the kid saying, ooh? Don't make fun of me. Here's what I want you to catch. are, Are you tracking with me on Joseph? It's fascinating. He gets zero airtime and yet probably one of the if you were God we get this idea that God just kind of closed his eyes said chuck him in a poor humble home and he'll learn a few lessons right that's what we think about with Joseph you know and he's just kind of like the stepfather I love this shirt I saw once it said I'm not the stepfather I'm the father that stepped up Those of you that have stepfathers, whether you're in this room and you are 50 or whether you're 15, you give that man respect for the responsibility that he's taken on. Yeah, he's not your dad, but you know what? If he's stepping up and trying to do it right, he deserves that credit. And and those of you that are stepdads should not diminish that kid's father should be helping him to figure out what that life is like. That's just some side advice. I'm sure it's in the Bible somewhere, but it's good stuff. And he says this, he says, when he's born, call his name Jesus, for he will save his people. In fact, that's, that's what Jesus means. Jesus, mean, Jesus is actually, it's, it's in multiple languages. Like, if I go down to Latin America, my name isn't Paul anymore. It's Pablo. I actually like that better, to be honest with you. You know, it's not Paul, it's Hermano Pablo, Pastore Pablo. It sounds, you know, like Italian-like. You put a vowel at the end, and now it sounds tough, you know? But Jesus is actually, the, it's Jesus is how you say it in Greek, but if you take that name and you bring it into the borders of Israel and say it in Hebrew, It's Yeshua. If you take that and you bring it into our language, it's Joshua. It's the name Joshua. That literally means God is salvation. God is deliverance. Just like what Joshua did in that he delivered the people of Israel again and again out of trouble and into promise. Jesus came so that he could take you and I out of of trouble and bring us into the promises of God. 
Now, here's, here's where we pop into gear a little bit here, and I want you to use your mind because this is going to end on a really spiritual note. Turn to your neighbor and say, use your brain. We're going to worship God with all of our mind. It's biblical. Deuteronomy 6. Love the Lord with all your heart, soul. We worshiped, we used our soul. We had a whole bunch of soul going on up here with evangelism, and I'm excited about what God's gonna do, but just bear with me to use your mind for just a minute here. Matthew is an Old Testament guy, and so I gotta actually get you to think Jewish for a second, but this is actually very, very profound. Whenever we look at this Bible verse, it says all this took place, verse Verses 22 and 23. All of this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Now, it doesn't say the prophet, but the prophet is Isaiah. The chapter in Isaiah is 7. The the verse he's going to quote is verse 14. And it says this. Behold, a virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. Now, first thing to understand in Judaism, there are no chapters, there are no verses. Quote for me real quick and real loud, John 3, 16, when I say go. One, two, three, go! Okay, tell me the chapter and verse where it says, therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. Oh, yeah, I just gave that to you. (laughs) Okay, here we go. Try this one. And over the people who remained in the land of Judah, whom Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, had left. Yeah. In Judaism, they're not using, stick with me with your mind, they're not using chapter and verse to get to where they are. They're using language. So where there's shared language, it's almost like they're saying, turn to John 3.16, but they're like, don't just stay there, keep reading the big message. For instance, when Jesus is on the cross and he says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He's actually quoting one of the Psalms where it goes on and David is in despair and he feels alone, but then he regroups and he says, but you, O Lord, have not forsaken me. And, And it actually begins to speak hope that he is not alone, and it's just in his agony he cries out, but he quotes that psalm to find strength to continue on the cross. That's, they did it different. I say John 3, 16, you can give it to me. I say Nebuchadnezzar and start quoting a verse. A Jewish person would be able to continue that and quote it. I had a professor who was studying with, a, with the, one of the top guys with the Dead Sea Scrolls, and he had committed so many books to memory that often they would be reading them out loud, and he would say, stop, and he'd continue to quote sometimes for five minutes, sometimes for 10 minutes, sometimes for 45 minutes, the longest amount. Word for word, the book that they were reading. It wasn't even the Bible. It committed whole volumes. It is amazing what you are capable of if you devote yourself wholly and completely to something. And God, and these people, God's Israelites, the Jewish people were committed to God's word in such a way that they knew it and they were able to just simply quote a phrase and off you were reading it. And the reason why he's quoting Isaiah is often not the reason we read. You see, we think that he's quoting this simply because he's saying, behold, the virgin cells conceive a son. And he doesn't call Jesus Emmanuel. He, 
He calls him, he, he, call, he doesn't call uh, Jesus Emmanuel, he calls him Jesus, Joshua. Now look at this real quick. If I want to say to you the word for virgin in Greek, Pastor Dylan, shout that as loud as you can. <laughs> he sounds like a scholar. Say it tw- 10 times louder and scholarly-like. Parthenos. And we're not going to go into the definition here this morning of this word. Now, we know this is someone who has had no relations with a man. Now, if I go to Isaiah chapter 7, verse 14, there's a Hebrew word there called Alma. I don't know if Amma's here, but it sounds like your name. We'll just say Amma. That actually is a young woman of marriageable age. Uh, although you are married, you could be an Alma. Those of you that are here, you could be an Alma. You could be, you, you, it didn't, but it didn't ne- necessitate that purity that's there. But what's interesting is that when the Jews rewrite the Bible in Greek, they go out of their way to use this word. Now, I don't want to get, I'm not going to get into the virgin birth right now, and we can talk about that next week, and, and uh, the mystery of that, and the supernatural aspect of that, but I want to dial in on Joseph, and catch something about this verse that we miss, why Matthew is quoting it, is he's also mainly quoting it for this word here, Emmanuel, God is with us. God is with us. Listen to these verses. I've got them up on the screen, but I'm going to read them for you here as they put that. Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and shall bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. Here's what was going on in the time of Israel when this verse was happening in Isaiah. The enemy called the Assyrians were coming in. By far, in my opinion, they were the worst animalistic army to ever walk the face of the earth. They took everything, left nothing. They began crucifixion by sticking people through poles. They surrounded your city and skinned you alive. When they captured and defeated a city after starving it out, they decapitated everyone's head and piled them up. They took all the food for themselves, all the money for themselves, and it's no wonder that they didn't live very long because they were the most brutal army ever to walk the face of the earth. And they were headed to Jerusalem, and all looked lost because they starved with Israel, and Dan fell, and the northern kingdom fell, and Shechem fell, and Shiloh fell, and Bethel fell, and all of these cities along the coast, this army was marching right for Jerusalem, and the king lost all hope. King Ahaz was just like, what in the world am I going to do? And Isaiah walks up to him, and he goes, ask God for a sign. Ask God for a sign. He'll give it to you. Oh my goodness, that we would have people that would say, God, give me a sign. Speak to me. Let me know that you're here. The guy was so despaired and so so on the fence with his relationship with God and so on the fence with, does God help those who help themselves or does God really show up and help us? And and, and he's just, I'm not going to put the Lord to the test. I won't won't ask for a sign. He says, well, guess what? I'm going to give you a sign anyway. God's going to give you a sign. Your wife, the, the, the young woman of marriageable age, the king, maybe it was his, his, his wife, the king's wife, maybe it was Isaiah. There's debates back and forth, but who cares? Because the sign of this child, he says, before the child knows the difference between 
saying mama, dada, what's good and what's bad, which could have been about like by the time he's age 12, he says this. He says the, that she will conceive, she'll, she'll bear a son, she'll call his name Emmanuel, God is with us. And he goes on in chapter 8, verses 8 through 10. And it will sweep into Judah and overflow and pass reaching even to the neck and outspreading its wings and fill the breadth of the land. Oh, Emmanuel! But it will not stand for God is with us. And I have an idea of what Mary thought. And I have an idea of what the shepherds thought. But how many of you have ever given consideration to what maybe Joseph thought in that moment where the angel showed up to him and said, do not be afraid to take Mary as your wife. Do not worry about your reputation. Do not worry about what people will think or say. For what is conceived in her is conceived by God. You shall name him Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. And then all of a sudden, Matthew writes off and says, this is it, this is the sign. We're in a terrible place in this world. Hell is, is, is descending upon us. Families are ruined. Armies are marching. Ballistic missiles are being launched. People's families are torn apart. Addictions overtaking people. God is going to be with you and he's going to show up because Emmanuel, God is with you. And Joseph just girded up and he said, I don't care what this means to me. I don't care what it means to my future. I don't care what it means to my wallet. I'm going to protect this child because this is the promise of God. I'm not mad at you, I'm just, and this isn't like preacher stuff, I'm passionate, I believe this with all of my heart. If you're a father and you're here today, you're a Joseph. Your child, God has a promise and a purpose for them, your children. Your stepchildren. You want, man, I, I, I wish one day someone, I'm going to bring in somebody from the outside that has an incredible ministry with blended families, and I'm going to ask, talk on stepdads, talk on stepmoms. Because Joseph is your patron saint of the stepfather. He's the father that stepped up. He had it all right in his lineage. He had it all right. He had the faith right. He had everything perfect. And this... This curve comes in. And he was such a righteous man, he's putting it away quietly, but then when he puts his head to bed, the Lord comes. I'm gonna ask the worship team to come at this time and he, think about this for a second. I don't, I don't know if you've ever had a God dream. I've never had a vision that, you know, sometimes when I hear Christians sharing visions, they have them every week, which makes me skeptical, right? but they're in the Bible. And then it kind of sounds more like some of the things that happen taking mescaline or LSD, you know, like the room disappears. And, you, you know, um, the book of Revelation is written in apocalyptic literature. They're using symbols and signs to hide what they're trying to say. But they would have these points where he'd see a vision and stuff he didn't understand. But I, I know what it's like to have a dream from God. I had this moment this was probably actually about two years ago, and this is, this is one of many. And when I say a God dream, I mean like the dream is so incredibly clear. And when you wake up, 
your room is filled with the presence of Jesus. And I remember I walked up to a mirror and as I stood there, there I was looking back at myself when I was seven. I know what I looked like when I was seven because there's a picture in my room. And that seven-year-old me looked at me and said, if you could do it all over again, would you do it any different? And I woke up, and the room was filled with the presence of God. And then I began to think about that. And I actually had a former student that I was talking with, and I shared that dream with them. And I said, you know what? You can't do it any differently. You can't go back and do a redo. You can't undo the things you've done, but I can be graced in my life where I'm at and do the very best that I can with what I have. And I think that that would have been a problem that Joseph would have probably dealt with. Imagine knowing that you have the Son of God and God's entrusted you with him and you're going to have to, like he probably, there are probably moments where maybe Joseph got frustrated with Jesus. Maybe, maybe different times where he's like, Ibby's not my kid. Listen, there's no stepson out there that doesn't have a moment that wants to look at your stepfather and say, yeah, but you're not my dad. Yes, he is. You're not my mom. Yes, she is. They're the ones raising you. They're taking that part. Your father, your mother, they're still as much your parents, but don't, don't disrespect the Josephs in your life who've stepped up and stepped in. And some of you are really incredible teachers to me of that as I've watched your life and I've watched those things where you, you have step members in your family and you call them dad, you don't call them Bill or Bob or Donna or Ann. But here's the, here's the whole thing about Matthew's quote of Isaiah. Every theologian and every commentary and every book that you want to read about it, it's always talking about the virgin birth, the virgin birth, the virgin birth. And it's like, it's, yes, it's right there. Matthew, it's right there in Matthew. And yes, I believe with all my heart that there are some language complications that aren't even worth unpacking in this room for us to get to the place to say, yes, that's what Isaiah is saying in chapter 7, verse 14. But what we miss is, is that the word Emmanuel is used three times. Three times. God is with us. I, I, I don't know where you are in your life. I don't know where you are in your problems, in your challenges, in your finances, in your families, in your prayer life, in your, in your word life, in your faith life. If you're walking around, coming here, and then going home and saying, I don't know, maybe we're making this up in our head, and uh, maybe you're like that King Ahaz. You're like, oh, God helps those who help themselves, and God's like, ask for a sign. Let me break into your life. Let me be with you. Let me help you. And it's out of this moment with Joseph, this incredible example of a man, where God goes out of his way just to try and help us, and every Jew would have gotten it. Say, so, you know, despite all the crazy stuff and the way things don't always go the way you want them to and this, that, and the other thing, 
God is with you. Listen to me. You may be in an active drug addiction right now. I want you to hear this. Emmanuel, God can be with you. You see, the whole prophecy of Isaiah was not about God is with you because you have a great family line and you are a godly person that does it perfect. Isaiah brings attention to Emmanuel because of the condition of everybody else. Your workplace is falling apart. Your business is falling apart. Your marriage is falling apart. Your battle with addiction is falling apart. Your battle with sexual addiction is falling in apart. What, diff, different strokes for different folks. You, I can't trade my vices for your vices. Maybe some of you are on the highway to hell with gossip while others of you are full speed down the road with pornography and sexual addiction. And others of you, it might be that you, you, you say you've got alcohol under control, but it, you, you totally don't and you know it. What, whatever it is, God doesn't have control of your life. Your addictions do, your habits do. And it's in that moment that you can feel pretty low right now and the finger shame could come out and we could think, well, that's what the commandments are for. What's Jesus for? Jesus is for because he came to deliver his people from their sins. It said that's what his name means, to, de to, to deliver, to forgive. The grace of God. Am I telling you, it doesn't matter that you have a pornography addiction. It doesn't matter if you have a prostitute or a sexual addiction. It doesn't matter. Well, I'm talking very straight here. I'm so sorry. I'm realizing there's some, now let's just give it straight. They're mature kids. So it doesn't matter whether you've got a gambling addiction, an opioid addiction, a gossip addiction, a bitterness addiction. You can, you can send yourself straight to hell with bitterness and unforgiveness just as effectively as heroin. Do you know that? I can't trade my vices for yours or vice versa. I wish I had different ones. I just, I just can't. And it's in those moments where the worst of us gets a hold of the best of us and we're like I can't do this and you look at Joseph and you're like oh my gosh the guy like sometimes when you look at perfect people in the church you just look at them and all it does is make you feel worse about yourself and it's in that moment and it's that reason against the backdrop of this amazing man that God gives an amazing promise of two names Jesus He's come to deliver you from your sins. And Emmanuel, that God is with you, faults and all. God's with you. God hasn't abandoned you. He's come to help you. He doesn't leave at the darkest hour and the darkest decision of your life. He grieves with you in those moments. And he's not looking to take space from you. He's looking to close the distance. How many of you are thankful for Jesus? How many of you are thankful for the cross? It's like he took your penalty for you and he bled out every vile, difficult thing. But some of us here are still hemorrhaging. We've still got issues to deal with. I'm standing because I'm the first one in this room to tell you I'm not a perfect man. Now, don't get me wrong. I'm not cooking meth and distributing it or cheating on my wife 
or surfing pornography on the web or anything like that, but well, there are ways to get yourself straight to the pit of hell separate from any of that kind of stuff. I'm not a perfect man. I still need God to save me. And that's what becomes even harder for you. And I feel that some, some of you need to hear this. Those of you that have been in the church most of your life, we've heard Jesus loves you. He died on the cross for your sins, but you better get the rest of it right or you might not make it. I'm here to tell you that God is with you. He loves you. He forgives you. And he can change you if you allow him to. It takes work. It takes time. How many of you are here and say, God, I need change in my life? I want you across this room, if that's you, just to stand to your feet. Just someone just be woman enough, man enough to say, I, I need change in my life. It's just between you and God. It's just between you and God. Think, Lord, right now, I think the last place you would be is with me. But when you sent Jesus into this world to take care of my sin, you said, God is with us. And that's the reason you came into this world, Jesus, so that you could be with us in our, in our trouble, in our trial, in our struggle, so that you could set us free. Right now, across this room, I just ask if you'd pray this prayer with me. Dear Jesus, I am not perfect. I'm not without sin. But you are with me. You died to take my punishment so that I could be holy and righteous. I don't feel holy, but I borrow your holiness until I see you in heaven. Until then, make me like Joseph, a man who loves you, a man who doesn't shame others, a person who reads your word, a person who learns to talk to you. Be Lord of my life. In Jesus' name, amen. I believe with all of my heart you prayed that for the first time. You've become a child of God. And uh, here's what I'd love for you to do is, is one of our pastors will be at the Welcome Center and we'd love for you to connect with them if you'd had that prayer. Maybe some of you here have some things you need to work out between you and God and you're saying, you know what? I'd love to come and kneel and talk to Jesus. That's what this altar area is for. Sometimes it's not like we need people laying hands on us. We just need to start a conversation with God and say, it's not that God needs, God knows everything, but sometimes we need to kind of let him know that we know we need to change, right? Um, and so the worship team's gonna continue to play here. If, uh, if you take that moment, I know that we have plans for doing uh, Christmas decorations. We'd love for you to stick around for that. Some of you can, some of you can't. We have cookies and those kind of things. I think we could whip this out in 20 minutes if we do it as a team. But I'd like to just preserve 10 minutes of just linger time for you. 
to connect with God if that's what you do. Otherwise, you're welcome to quietly kind of go out into the foyer, start hitting those cookies, get a sugar rush, and uh, we'll do that. Lord, just thank you for your people. I pray you'd bless them. I pray you'd be with them. Lord, true power doesn't need to make noise all the time. Um, there are times where we need a shout, but I just thank you for your gentleness here this morning, and I just thank you that you are with us. In Jesus' name, amen. God bless you. It's a privilege to be a pastor. Thank you. Thank you for being with us today. Be sure to listen to all our messages on YouTube, Apple Podcasts, and Spotify. And follow us on ne-cc.org for all information and updates. Thank you. God bless. Have a great day.